0: and then we'll look at Mark chapter 12. Well, oh, Father, thank you for your hand upon us. Um, as we've just been reminded, you are the ancient of days. What a statement that that speaks of. There is none before you, none behind you, none upholding you. You are completely self-sufficient in all of who you are. And you are not in need of anything. But Lord, we are in need of a lot. <laughs> We get sick and we go through struggles, we find ourselves depressed at times, Uh, we struggle with sin and so we need you, Lord. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us not desire the things of this world, not desire the things that war against our souls, but give us a strong desire for you. Teach us, Lord, to follow you, to obey you, to love you, not out of duty, but delight, Lord. Help us choose you over fleshly desires that plague us as men and women and boys and girls of this earth. Give us a hunger for you, Lord. Give us an appetite daily to know who you are, to read of you, to study of you, to speak with you. Help us when temptation comes, Lord. We all struggle with our flesh from time to time if not more often than we care to admit. but when temptation comes let our weaknesses find our strength in your word and who you are, your character your saving power, Lord Lord, help us see your glory bring us to our knees, Lord when we need to be humbled and bring us to our feet to give you praise and adoration Father, we thank you for all that are here today, Lord. Many have been sick or going through procedures of some sort, and many have returned, Lord, and, but yet there's still some at home, some not feeling well, others going through procedures, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you know us. You know every cell in our body. You are truly the great physician, and yet you have ordained all of our days. May we trust you in them, Lord. Father, be with our missionaries today. We love them. We're so grateful for them. We thank you that they are doing things in places that we can't go. They are presenting the gospel. They're proclaiming the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give them favor and strength. Protect them from illnesses. Protect them from those who oppose the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to forget them. May we pray constantly for them. and Lord, put them on our hearts, Lord. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, give us joy and strength and satisfaction in Christ. Help us to find our resolve in this great one who knows all things, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a little while since I've been in Mark, so I'm looking forward to get back in Mark. Um, It's so fun to study the Bible verse by verse. Uh, you really catch the the meaning of the bible and, and, uh, and but we take a little hiatus from time to time a couple weeks ago i uh, I did a sermon on the sanctity of life, and I think that 's important that time to time we stop and talk about those things. And then Brian preached just a phenomenal uh, message last week. I enjoyed listening to that myself. But today we want to turn back to Mark. And I want to just go back to chapter 11 real quick and kind of catch us up. Been a few weeks. Let's see what's happening as the Lord Jesus Christ enters Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. This was what we often refer to as the triumphal, uh, triumphal entry. Here the Lord comes in, he comes in with his disciples and great fanfares, is, is uh, uh, bolstered as he comes in. Many might and some believe that he is the Messiah and he comes in and he is honored and, and palm branches are thrown on the ground and, and, and he's riding an unridden colt and, and they're waving um, uh, coats and blankets at him and, and, and they're cheering for him, all to the dismay of the religious leaders. And then he makes his way into Jerusalem after this great parade of coming in and he goes right to the temple. First thing he does and he looks around. Remember that? And he sees what's going on in his father's house it's the day of selection of the Passover lamb. So he chooses not to do anything that day. It's the, it's the time where families selected a Passover lamb. Often they would bring that lamb and, and the Pharisees and the rulers, the temples, that were ruling those who were ruling the temple would dismiss that and say, oh, that's not good, but we'll sell you something else. It was a total racket. And yet the lambs were being selected just as Jesus was being selected. But the next day he returns, and on his way in, you remember this, he comes to a fig tree that is fruitless. And it looks like a good tree. It has everything it needs to be a good, fruitful tree, but it is fruitless, and he curses it. And the disciples mark that in their mind as they see that he said, never will fruit be on you again. From there, he moves straight towards the temple, and he begins to drive out those who are selling and buying and turning over tables. Here he, he shows a very righteous anger. As he sees the abuse of his father's house. And really the abuse of what it meant to come to God. And how you come to God. A distortion of that. He knew that was a future view of what his salvation would provide. And here it was being greatly distorted. This caused them eventually to leave back out of the city. Each and every night he would leave and go back to Bethany, probably staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And on his way out, they find that fig tree again. (laughs) And this time the disciples say, that tree you cursed is dead from the roots. Meaning dead, dead. (laughs) Not kind of dead, dead. And that marks a conversation that the Lord Jesus begins to have about what true faith in God is and how it produces fruit. And if it doesn't produce fruit, it's cast away. And the result of the work of God in our life is to produce fruit. From there, he comes back in the next day again, and he begins teaching in the temple. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And he's walking through the temple, through the corridors, the Gentile court and probably Solomon's porch and, and they're teaching and the masses are following him he has not been in Jerusalem a lot he came in early in his ministry he left headed for Judea and the hills and out in the, in the highways and byways and, and now the crowds are realizing he's here and they're, and they're mobbing him and so this brings the religious leaders out of the woodwork they do not want to lose their authority and power they have over the people This is not about the kingdom, this is about their kingdom. And so they begin to press Jesus and they ask him a question thinking they got him trapped. This is their whole plan here and it doesn't work very well. But they begin to ask him, was John the Baptist from heaven or from men? And they begin to want to know by what authority Jesus speaks and how did he speak and so forth. And, And the Lord takes this on. And he begins to reverse the questions. And they begin to be men who can't answer it. They know that if they answer one way, the people will turn against them. If they answer the other way, it it exonerates and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're stuck. Because Christ knows all things. And finally, very end Jesus says, I will not say to you what authority I have. But then he turns in chapter 12. Instead of telling them, he turns to the people and gives that parable. Wow, what a parable. Remember that? It's the parable of the vine growers. And he gives this beautiful story based uh, out of Isaiah uh, and And here he shows this great vineyard that the owner owned, and and he made it and created it and cleared it and planted it and, and as beautiful as it could imagine in your mind, he displays this this vineyard, but then he allows people to care for it, and these people act godless when harvest comes. He sends some of his workers they come to collect some of that, a rightful that the owner would have he would collect produce he would collect a profit from his investment and each and every time the servant is beaten and turned away some are even killed then he decides i will send my son surely they will recognize my son and this one they begin to realize if this is a son perhaps he's dead if we kill the son we will take over the vineyard it will be ours and so they kill the son Jesus ends this great parable with the vineyard owners come back. He's the stone that which was rejected. He is the chief cornerstone that everything is built on. He's speaking of our salvation, speaking of the kingdom of God, of all that he owns and reigns and all that is to come. He is the corner of that and they rejected him. And into this great parable, they realized he was speaking about them. But they don't give up, and that's what our next text is. They continue to send people to try to trap Jesus. Clearly, they don't know what they're doing and who they're handling. So as we now look at this, I want to just help us kind of think of who they're dealing with. Christ's glory was constantly on display. And what we mean by that is he displayed characteristics of things only God could do. Now, remember, one of the first things that we see him do early in these synopses is he goes to heal a a a paralytic man, and he does what? He forgives his sins. Now, this was astonishing, and this, this helps you understand the glory of God seen in Christ. Because even the Pharisees, in that moment, mocked him under their breath, which he heard, and they said to themselves, no one can forgive sins but God. And so he is, he is showing them, yes, you are correct, no one can forgive sins but God, but guess who I am. I'm God. I share His glory, I share His deity. And, and what's fascinating about that is he forgives sins, and that is man's greatest need. Now I want you to think about that. What other thing could man have other than his sins forgiven? What, what greater thing could he have than his sins forgiven? And how many men know that? How, does mankind know that? I, I trust you do. That's why you're here. <laughs> the greatest need we have is our sins forgiven because if they're not forgiven, what happens? You pay for them. And the wages of sin is? And so we pay by death eternally. But the Lord Jesus Christ died in our place. This is the beautiful doctrine of imputation. He took our sins and we received his righteousness. This is the greatest demonstration of the glory of God found in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ that he can forgive our sins. But he doesn't stop there in this ministry. He has control of his creation. The Lord Jesus awakened in the boat as these seasoned fishermen are are afraid for their lives and he speaks to his creation. Man, I want to see the replay on that. And it it behaves. It does exactly what he exhorts it to do. The seas flatten out. The wind stops blowing because he is in absolute control of those things he himself made. He's showing his glory. He heals the sick. Passage after passage as we looked, the Bible said, particularly in Mark and Matthew and Luke, that he healed all who came to him. Now, now, that's, that's a medical miracle. <laughs> it took, him six, took me six weeks with rounds of antibiotic, and I'm still not all the way well. <laughs> Completely healed people life-altering relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when it came to physical, God met their needs. He restores deformities. Lips that won't speak, tongues that won't verbalize, ears that won't hear. He 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 does this all by his power and his authority. He's demonstrating his glory. He feeds the masses with with small amounts. He's miraculously creating food in the present time for the present need for thousands and thousands of people. And by the way, he raises the dead little girls, Lazarus. All done, not as he would say, not for his own glory, so that they would see and understand who he is in relationship to the Father. He knew they needed to see that. So here's Christ at the end of his ministry. He is now days before his crucifixion. He is in his final week. We call it the Passion Week. And yet, now think about this, the religious leaders... Hate him it 's a strong word isn 't it We're, you know the word, the country's writing you know laws now hate crime laws, and certainly there are many cases that needs to be handled, but uh, the word hates' a powerful word isn 't it? and these men hate him, and he speaks clearly about those things in john eight forty six and he 's been working his way to this, he says. Which one of you convicts me of sin? It's a great statement. Imagine this, the Jesus Christ, the one who's headed for the cross, come from the Father. He's already said, all that the Father does, I do also. If you've seen the works of the Father, you've seen my works too. We do those together. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, for which one, uh, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? I love those kind of questions. Because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you look at that and you go, "I (laughs) I believe you, Jesus. But most people don't. And they don't look at him as the standard of truth, and Jesus was the standard of truth. If you understand truth, I am. I am the word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the standard of truth. And no one quotes the Old Testament more than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's constantly using God's word to expose who he is and why he's there. And yet, they hated him. And I think what happens as we study this, the closer you get to Christ and his word, the more your heart is exposed. And that could be for good. Good. The more you and I get closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, the more we study this, the more we know it, it exposes our hearts. It it may, for a Christian, it may today expose some sin you're harboring. And the Lord says in your heart, you, you hear him, Spirit of God working on you saying, Hey, hey, why are you holding on to this? And even now, you've been reminded of his glory and person and who he is. And, and you, I hope, like you, when I study the scriptures, it's just a great time of repenting and saying, oh, Lord, these are areas I want to I walk with you better on. You see, it exposes your heart. But there's another side to that coin. And that's what we see in these groups that come to them. The closer they get to Christ, the more they hear his words, what happens? The more they hate him. The more they reject him. See, that's, there's something divine that has to happen to us. That's the work of the Spirit of God. He, he, he now captures us. He, he now opens our hearts. We now sense conviction. We, we sense a desire for him. We, we sense a, a responsibility in a way to him, to honor him and to walk with him, not, not because we have to, but because we get to now. But then there's those, as we'll see in the text, they have little, little, If no desire to know who he is. Only to prop themselves up. So some come to him for truth. And some come in hypocrisy. The religious have to find a way to discredit Jesus. They have to. They're working overtime. You can see they've met. They've, they have a plan here. In the first group, in 1127, they're, they're a group, a hand-selected group from the Sanhedrin of chief priests and scribes and elders. They're, they're sent. And then today, now we find another group. They're hand-selected Pharisees and Herodians. And we'll talk about them in a moment. They've they're, they're got a plan. They've got to come discredit him. If he keeps doing what he's doing, all the world will follow him, they said. So in their pride, they believe if they, can't, if they can't solve the problem, so as they got together and they start thinking about how can we trap him, here's what they thought. Now, I want you to understand this because we're going to look at this question they're going to ask. They thought they can't resolve this question, so there's no way Jesus can resolve it, and so we'll trap him. See how they looked at Jesus? See, they're looking at him just like a normal human, in fact, below them. Because they themselves can't solve these questions. This one is about what to give to Caesar. The next question we'll handle next week is about marriage. They can't solve it. They have huge arguments between the two of them, the two groups. They don't like each other. They know they can't solve this, so certainly there's no way this guy can solve this. The guy from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? And so this is all a trap. This is their hatred for Christ. So now we're gonna get to this payment, this tribute to the Romans. It was a burning question at this time in the leadership. And, And it was all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They could not solve this question. The Jews hated the tax. And it stirred these strong emotions of nationalism in them. And they wanted to use this question that they could not find an answer to to try to expose the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at a couple of thoughts and watch our Lord Jesus masterfully work through this godless, pagan attempt to discredit him. Number one. And there's, these are just thoughts that this is what happens to us. This could happen to people if we don't follow Christ. Number one, hatred creates godless relationships. Hatred creates godless relationships. I want you to think about that. Young people, you need to think about that. Older people, all of us, we need to think about that. You find people who have a common interest to hate someone. Boy, there's some groups that will get together you never thought could. I'm not talking about anything that happened this last week. You can watch it happen, though, in society. You can watch it happen at schools. You can watch it happen in neighborhoods. You can watch it happen in churches. And we want to be careful of this. And I think God is exposing some very personal things, even as the Lord Jesus Christ defends truth here. So hatred creates godless relationships. In this section, Christ is taken on all comers, right? One after another, these groups start coming. One religious group goes down, the Sanhedrin group comes up, in comes the next. And this was the planned assault, planned out assault to discredit Jesus before the Jewish people and eventually before Rome. Now, after verse 12 these baffled, selected members of the Sanhedrin, they leave with their tail between their legs. They, they know that that parable is about him. In verse 13, now comes a certain selection of Pharisees are now gonna attempt to trap Jesus Christ. Matthew calls them disciples of the Pharisees. Don't let that fool you. What that means was this was the chosen Pharisees. They're best trained men to come get Christ. Luke calls them spies who pretended to be righteous. Now they, they're joined, this, what joins with this select Pharisees were these Herodians. Now these guys got another problem, right? These were men deeply committed to Herod Antipas. They're deeply committed to Rome. Um, the Pharisees were, were known for their intense nationalism and they were known for the hatred they had that Rome ruled over them or anybody else. But the Herodians were intensely political. So, so here's two very strange bedfellows <laughs> joining up together. Their hatred is driving their questions. Their hatred is driving what they don't like. Furthermore, paying a tribute or a poll tax Repulse the Jews And the Herodians Said they should be giving more That's, That was their political stance Jews We don't deserve this This is an embarrassment We, we, don't, we don't want to pay this they, were, they, they fought over this I'll show you this in a little bit cause A lot of people died over this poll tax And then you have those Herodians say No let's pay more Rome's great Let's get behind them that's the two groups that are in this passage here. We need to understand that. The Herodians were dependent on and they sought favor from Rome. They were sellouts in a lot of ways to the Jews. And they were in favor of any tax to help their position with Rome. And so these arch enemies now have a common bond. They've made an alliance to go after Jesus. And you say, well, how do they do that? They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. I don't know how to say it. Because why, why would these groups that hate each other, that don't agree on anything, do this? They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. And that becomes a common practice. Notice in verse 13, the text says this their goal is to trap him in a statement. Word traps, a strong word. It means to catch a wild an- animal, uh, set a snare. I don't know if you've ever done this. The goal is to, uh, if you're going to trap, you've got to take all the scent off of it. So you've you got to be very careful. Trap, animals are very leery of traps. Maybe you've tried to catch a mouse or two or a rat. They'll pick up on anything. So you got to understand what they're doing. They're setting a trap. They're setting a snare. And they are going to try to deceive, mask everything they're doing so that Jesus won't know what they're up to. Good luck with that. So now you have two groups of people who hate each other but have agreed on a question to trap the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, Bringing these two groups together is an amazing thing. And in Acts 23, I'll actually look at this a little more next when we get into marriage. Because the next passage says that the Sadducees did not, uh, did not believe in the resurrection or angels. But Paul knew this when he was on trial. It's, we'll look at this next week, but I just want to give you a little hint. Acts 23, he's before the council, and they're condemning Paul. And they're hitting him and mocking him and putting him on trial. And and he picks up that there's Sadducees and there's Pharisees in the same room. So he throws out angels and resurrection and gets them fighting with each other. He's a master at it. What the point is, is these guys, after this was over, they still hated each other. This is what their common goal was to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that there's also other people who came together. Luke chapter 23, 11 and 12. Herod with his soldiers, after treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, this is during his trial, right? Dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now listen to this verse. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when the world hates Christians. We're followers of Christ. And you will watch groups someday come upon, praise God this hasn't got to this point in America, it has in many other places, where you will find groups that do not care for each other, that will oppose the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see it. The Bible says, that hatred is wrong. I love the way the Proverbs put it. I like this when I liked this verse when I was a little kid. I think I recited it to my mom a couple of times. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. <laughs> it's downplaying the joy of vegetables, I believe. <laughs> Opposed to the fattened ox, that's hatred. I'll take the sprouts <laughs> or whatever, green beans, whatever you don't like, over this well-fed, marbled New York strip that has hatred. Isn't that amazing? God does not care for hatred, sinful hatred. Proverbs twenty-six, twenty-six, though his hatred be covered with deception, Ooh, this. Remember, these guys know this, right? The Bible says that the Pharisees themselves could quote full books of the Old Testament by personal memory. Listen to this. They know this verse, Proverbs twenty-six, twenty-six. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. They're not going to get away with this. And though they, discuss, they disguise it and cover it with deception, it's exactly what these men are doing. It will be exposed. John 7, 7, Jesus tells his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that their deeds are evil. And that's exactly what they're after. And so hatred creates godless relationships and you can see this happening. They're building a godless relationship um, Uh, A relationship against the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, without truth that grants freedom, the world turns to deception. Notice verse 14 with me. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to anyone, but teach the way of God in truth. Let me read that just one more time and remember who we're dealing with who's saying this. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one for you are not partial to anyone but teach the way of God in truth. Now they start out with this teacher, your translation may say even master here. Um, it's, It's a term for someone who is deserving of such title and certainly Christ is upright and perfect in character and he deserves this title master or teacher but this is a cunning introduction. Um, It's it's given to disarm Jesus, to get him on his heels, um, to make him not suspect what they are up to. This group did not want to fail like the last group, right? That group's got their tail between their legs, they're coming behind them, like, well, you guys blew it, we're gonna get him. They did not want that to happen. And so they did not want to have Jesus say something that would defeat them. Now, the flattery continues. Of, I was reading through Job, uh, the latter part of Job, looking for something the other day, and I came across this verse, chapter 32, verse 22. It says, for I do not know how to flatter, now listen to this, else my maker will soon take me away. <laughs> so flattery is, is, is not what God wants, right? So, so here, now these Pharisees and Herodians, listen to their saying, we know that you're truthful. You, you defer to no one. You, you don't, you don't practice partiality. Um, you, you, you teach only the truth of God, right? And notice a little phrase, we know. So, so there's some kind of evidence, even in their lie and their deception, that they've seen Christ's perfect life. In his trial, they have to lie in his trial because they can't find anything against him. He's, so they say, we know. We know this. We, we're witnesses to this. And I think this is this really a hypocritical testimony about the, which was an unintentional confession of the profound impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, we know that you are truthful. See, Jesus is the Word, He's the standard of truth. Notice they speak of His lack of need of counsel. <laughs> That's a trait only God has. He doesn't refer to anybody the trinity is not going well you know let's ask the angels we're not sure should we do you know land on day three or should we you know he doesn't defer to somebody i, I love our pastoral staff because we defer to each other all the time we're hey brian or you know hey rick jerry you know you guys ever looked at this text? We'll, we'll ask each other and, and seek counsel for one another. We need to do that. Husbands and wives should seek counsel from it. You're a fool, husband, if you don't refer to your wife. Um, she's wise and, and she knows God's word often and she can help. Um, people who don't defer are either arrogant or they've got to be God. One of the two. <laughs> and so here they said, you don't defer to anybody. Well, that's a trait only given to God uh, they, see they want him what they're trying to do is they want him to speak freely and if he'll speak freely he'll offend the Jews they think because they're thinking humanly and the Romans and they'll give opportunity for both groups to reject him he says they also said for you are not partial to anyone really interesting phrase in the Greek it reads this way for you see the face of man you Greek students I hope you have your Bibles with you you see the face of man. It's an old Hebraic saying, and, and, and it comes from some Hebrew text, but means that he does not pay attention to outward appearances of men to be influenced by their position, wealth, or power. That's what they meant by that phrase. We, we struggle to bring that across in English sometimes. You're not influenced by people. Meaning, he, he doesn't go, well, look, um, these are some big wigs around here and they can put me to death and they can, you know, they can really help me get the votes. Or well, He doesn't think that way. Nor does he need to think that way. And that's because he is, he is truly God. He shares the essence of the glory of the Lord. And all things, think about this, this is, and this is a Hebrew phrase that they picked this up on, all things are before the face of God. Past. Present, future, this is how he will judge everything in the end, it is, although, it is as if everything that's ever taken place is right in his face, whether it's all the way from the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, or the last person that's on this earth, whoever sins, that is all before him. That's the phrase they're referring back to. This is a huge snow job, because they don't believe this. Now, Jesus knew him Right? First time he came into Jerusalem in John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, Jesus says this, after he's cleaned the temple out first time, he says, but Jesus on his part, John commenting on this, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. Then it says this, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew himself what was in man. Everything is before him. Now, we know that he, at times, uh, lives and works within his own humanity to not give himself an advantage so that he would suffer in all ways. But he is still God in that full humanity. He's still God, and he knows them. And so here comes these knuckleheads, um, these Pharisees and Herodians, thinking that they're going to disguise this. And he goes, I know exactly what's in your heart. And this little butter job that you have going on isn't working Now, the last one they said, but teach the way of God in truth. I wrote my notes and said, man, they are laying it on thick. Because this was their job. Their job was to teach the way of God. They were the protectors of God's word. They were the ones that would tell you what the Bible says, what God's word says, and how to live up to it, and how to gain the kingdom of God. And yet they make this statement of him. But you teach the way of God in truth. And they certainly recognize that he taught God's word. Nobody nobody taught the word of God better than the Lord Jesus Christ. He used the Old Testament constantly to bring about the truth. But their sugar-coated words were skillfully chosen to try to catch Jesus off guard and get him in this trap. Well, fallen man has always used flattery. And even in the Old Testament, even in the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, God wrote against it. He did not care for flattery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You'll remember this. You shall not bear false witness. False testimony against your neighbor. Well, clearly Jesus is their neighbor. They're bearing false witness. They're saying things they don't believe. That's false witness. Not to mention they're about ready to break one of the other commandments. Thou shalt not kill or murder. (laughs) These men are not of God's word, but Jesus is. Proverbs chapter nine, nine, Proverbs nineteen nine says, "A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish." Remember my mom quoting that one to me. What are you saying, mom? <laughs> Proverbs twelve twenty two: Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. Now what they're saying is truth, but it's done in a lie and deception, isn't it? This is the way people work. And Jesus knew this. John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil. And you do not want to, uh, excuse me, you you do want to do what your desires of your fathers are. The father, is a, he's a devil and you want to do his desires. He is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies and you're his kids. Boy, he doesn't mix words, does he? It's because he knows he'd come to earth to die for us and he doesn't have to sugarcoat anything. And he knows he can speak true. Third thought. Hypocrisy loves and protects itself at all costs. Hypocrisy loves and protects itself at all costs. Well, the bait's in the trap now. Their repulsive kissing up is over. And at last, they finally ask the question. Look at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? In other words, is paying this poll tax in line with the demands of the Torah. The teaching of God, right? Particularly the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 17, 15 said that they were not to have any foreign kings that they were to pay homage to. Boy, they knew that passage. And so the Jews saw themselves as members of a theocracy, That God was their ruler. God was the head of their kingdom. God was the one that they worshipped. It was God's government. So to give taxes or tribute to Caesar. Would appear to be disloyal to a divine government. So to them this was an unjust obligation. Something not required by them of the law. So they hated this poll tax. Now on top of that the poll tax particularly bothered them, right? Because they had to pay a lot of taxes. There were transportation taxes, there were import taxes, land taxes, there were crop taxes. Um, uh, There's constantly tax collectors. We know Matthew was one of them among them, um, um, exacting money from them. But this one bothered them the most because a poll tax was on the person. For being alive and being a Jew and being under our authority as Rome, we're going to tax you. Now, it, it consisted of one denarius per day. Uh, and one denarius, that was, that was what it took the tax. And that was roughly what I meant to say is that's the per person paid a denarius and it, and it was roughly a day's work, right? So whatever a, a day's work in that time was mounted up to about a denarius of the average, and what they hated about this tax is that it had amounted to that Caesar owned them. It really was a tax that they owned them. And this is what they revolt, revolt over. You can see this in Acts chapter 5 verse 37. It talks about a revolt that happened long, probably when Jesus was a little boy. Happened way back and they revolted. Many Jews were killed over this revolt, over this tax. And you can go back and read on that. But verse 15, they say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now... Now this is particular to Mark, that little phrase, um, and it's a, it's a deliberative, subjunctive phrase. And, and what that means is there's this serious problem of conscience that they themselves could not quite figure out because they had people on different sides of the argument. And so they were stuck. And so they used this, this argument to attempt to catch Jesus in this dilemma so they can show that he is against the Jews or he's against Rome, and that's their goal. It was a dilemma they fought over for years. Now, in their thinking, they would use his answer against him. If Jesus says yes, he would offend the people and discredit his messianic claims because the Jews believe that the true Messiah would not be subservient to any pagan nation, right? Rome's a pagan nation. Caesar's God, and all those who rule after Caesar are gods underneath him. So if he's the Messiah, it, he would never pay this tax because he would never be subservient to a pagan. If he says no, Jesus would be reported to the Roman government as a rebellion, as a rebe- one who is rebellious and be arrested and done away with. And so it looks like the trap is perfect with no sketch. But certainly they don't know who they're dealing with. Look at verse 15 with me. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Matthew says he perceives their malice, wickedness. Luke says he detected their trickery, craftiness. They, they sought to conceal this sinister, sinister plan, right? They're dishonest men and consciously liars. And they, they say to Jesus that you speak the truth, but here they're trying to trap him. And by the way, I want you to understand that both the Pharisees and Herodians paid the poll tax every year. Just so you know, they, they, had, they went ahead and paid it. And it was out of a matter of convenience, a lack of conviction, or probably the fear of man. Now notice the end of verse 15. Here's Jesus Bring me a denarius to look at. Verse 16 says, And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Christ makes them produce a denarius. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's really interesting. If it's a day's wages, it's quite a bit of money. And I, I don't know what you all make, but take what you make a month, combined salaries, whatever's in your household divide that by say 24 because you wouldn't work on the Sabbath in this time and then try to figure out what that would mean in your pocket. Some of you that could be thousands of dollars a day. Some of you could be hundreds, You know, maybe a couple of bucks for some of you students. Um, (laughs) But most likely, here's the point, nobody in that crowd had a day's wages of cash on them. And so Jesus makes them produce it. He's exposing their love for money. This is men of wealth and powerful positions, men that would not let their daughters marry outside pharisaical families because there they would keep the money and keep the vineyards and keep all the power and authority in it. These men loved money and they had it on them, and Jesus knew it. Notice next that he says, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, who's asking the questions? See, he's got them already. They're going, We're gonna, we got him now. We got a question he can't answer. Within moments, he's asking them questions they can't answer. They're dealing with God. And they're in trouble already. They say to him, Caesar. But notice they don't answer the inscription part. Jesus said, who likeness is on it? And what's the inscription in this, right? What's on this? And they said, Ca- Caesar. So the image, now think about this, the image would have been either augustus or tiberius depending on the circulation of that time right then but the inscription would have said something like this on us tiberius caesar augustus the son of divine augustus and on the flip side of the coin it would have said chief priest now think about how hard this was for them the jews objected to the coin because it had a graven image on it that's a problem And it also, they rejected it because of Augustus's and Caesar's claim to deity. So now they have to not only give a tax for being a person in slavery to Rome, right? That that fried them. And now they have to pay with a coin that has a picture, an engraven image of one who claimed deity on it. See, this this all reminded them of Caesar's authority over them and that they were captive to it. I mean, they, and it's a reminder of why they're there. And as I thought about this, I said, Lord, you, what you were doing, I think what you're doing here is teaching them, you rebelled against me. And it started a long, long time ago. We want a king like everyone else. God is your king the prophet said. No, we want to be like the rest of the nations. We want their gods and their women, we want to be like that. And they began to rebel and God so graciously waited on them and sent prophets to them and they killed and murdered and beat those prophets. And now, over time, they've been in, they've been in captivity, in secession, one after another. Assyrians and Babylonians and Mede-Persians and Greeks and now Rome, they can't do and live as they want. And now they gotta pay a tax for being them in slavery. It all rubs on them wrong. But you go, well, why? Why would they pay that tax? Why would they not rebel? Well, one, they didn't have the strength to fight, but I want you to remember this. They hated Caesar but they hated Jesus more. Think about what they'll do in just probably 48 hours from now. In John chapter 19, Pilate says, what do I do with Jesus then? I wash my hands of him. He's, he, is, he is, I cannot find guilt in him. He publicly declares the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what they say? You know this verse, John 19, 15. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but, oh my goodness. The very one that they would not want to give this poll tax to because Caesar's face was on it, this this self-proclaimed deity, they in the end, in order to murder Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, they proclaim their allegiance to a demigod. Isn't that amazing? See, the hearts of man are so desperately wicked, and brothers and sisters, do not forget that would be us if it was not for the Lord Jesus Christ. We would cry out those things. You go, no, no, I was raised a good person. No, you weren't. You had some good morals. But those morals would have taken you right to hell. And we look at this and we're in awe of it, aren't we? And you go, how can that happen? It happens all the time. And it's going to happen more and more as this world continues and the Lord tarries. They will find people who hold their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word, all of it. One of the things we're dealing with in the church right now is there's a group of people that are trying to figure out if what Jesus says compared to the rest of the Bible because then they can say, well, Jesus didn't talk about these certain things, so we can do that. And they dismiss the word of God and say, well, Jesus didn't talk about this. They're right in our midst. They're in our church circles. Who's your allegiance to? God and his word, the Lord Jesus Christ, would never separate his word from the written word. He's the living word, and he upholds the written word. I gotta move here, but look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. Jesus' response is masterful. The coin represented the things that belonged to Caesar and all the rights and duties that belong to the realm of human government. That's what that coin held. This was just a stark reminder of their sin. You're under this human government. You are to give to this human government what is rightfully theirs. Notice, um, if you look at the Matthew passage, he says, therefore, give to Caesar. It's a command. Jesus says, give it to him. That's what you're under. You're under this human government. And then Jesus makes this great statement. We love this. And to God, the things that are God. Whatever belongs to God, give him those things. So Jesus also reminds them of their steadfast obligation to God. And particularly in this situation, in the context, they're Jews. They were given the oracles of God. They're God's chosen nation. They had the law of God. They pretended to live by it. And they had all these other things that they pretended to live by. Then give it to God. You're under a human government because of your sin. Give that human government what they deserve. Give Caesar Caesar's things, but you give me my things. Your duty to give to the ruling authority did not eliminate their obligation to give to God. And so Jesus' words display no conflict between the two. They had major conflicts between it, but God had no conflict between it. Christ says there's no conflict here. You give to what Caesar is. That's where you're at. That's where I've placed you. You're under the discipline, the hand of God. You give to him, and you give to me. They were distinct responsibilities, and certainly God was the crowning responsibility, still is, but it was part of, but it was, one of, it, was, it was not one or the other, it was both. That's what he told them to do. And they knew he was right. Luke in 20, chapter 20, verse 26, same account, says, and they were unable to catch him in the saying in the presence of people, being amazed at his answers. They kept silent. Matthew, the account in 22, 22, said this, and they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. They couldn't say anything. They just had to walk away at his answer. But then just this last thought before we just touch on the last point briefly as point of application. When you get to the end and Jesus is before Pilate, this is what comes out of these same people's mouth. Luke chapter 23, one through two. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation in forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar in saying that he himself is Christ the king. Full out, blatant lie before Pilate. He told them, give to Caesars with Caesars. See, they didn't like the answer. And that's what often happens. Unfortunately, we preach the word of God or, or we look at the word of God personally. We see the answer of the word of God and go, mm, can't do that. There's a major conflict. Last thought. We just want to put some applications to us here. For worship and stewardship produces good citizens and great givers. (laughs) Worship and stewardship produces good citizens and great givers. Most of the time, when you hear this text taught, it's a church that's after money. That's how I heard it. Nobody ever explained this whole full on attack that this is a series of attacks. What's going on here? What's at the root of the problem here? Um, And yet, there is some truth there. And so when we think about this, they heard this statement in chapter, uh, verse 17 in our text, the end of it says they were amazed at it. And all three record the same statement. So it's a strong compound word here and only used here in the New Testament and denotes this continuing strong feeling. They were like, wow, they did not get over this statement that the Lord Jesus said. It really grabbed them is the idea here. So the crowd, they react different than the Pharisees and the Herodians. Like the difference between a begrudging admiration for his answer versus like a jaw drop like, wow, that was an amazing statement. And so they knew their beat and they leave. But Jesus had not only escaped their trap, but he threw a floodlight, he threw a spotlight on their sin and their rebellion. They were in rebellion. They were in rebellion, and their sin was causing them to rebel against local authorities, local and and national government, and God was exposing that. And so this highlights their captivity. It highlights their sin, their rebellious hearts. It it highlights their lack of repentance, and it highlights their lack of a need of a savior. The reason, see, they're, they're looking for a Messiah that comes and takes over and starts his kingdom, and that's because they don't need a savior. They just want a king. And that's what the world wants today. Well, we'll believe in Jesus if he'll give us what we want. If he'll heal me, he'll make me rich and prosperous. Just give me that, Jesus, and, and, and we're good. Most people don't want a savior. Most people don't want to go, I'm going to hell without you, Jesus. My sin deserves eternal damnation in your just, in, in your just judging of me. Most people won't say that believers will. So I think this is a good question. Are we still amazed, right? I think it's a good question for us. When you hear this message, when you see Jesus Christ, when you come face to face with him, as we are in the text, are you, am I, amazed at him? Is this driving our obedience? Is this driving our worship? 2 Corinthians 5 says, for the love of Christ compels us, controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore, all died and he who died for all is Jesus so that they may live no longer for themselves. So there's a, now a new desire for us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this motivates us to give to what Caesar deserves and what God deserves, right? And, and so Christians, Christians should be the greatest example. I, I, you know, I, you've been watching all this crazy stuff happening in Washington and I, I often talk to the Lord and say, Lord, I wonder where the believers are on all this. I, I hope we have a, a biblical worldview of what's going on. Romans 1 tells us that we're to submit to local authorities. That God set them up. There's no one in government that wouldn't be there unless God put them there. That's what Romans 1 says. First Peter reminds us basically of the same. Peter says, look, submit to the government. God's placed them there for you. And you go, well, Scott, there's there's all kinds of bad stuff going on. Do you not think what was going on in their life? Apostles are being beheaded. They're watching one after another killed. Family is going before lions. They're, They're brutalizing people. And Peter says, submit to the local government. Submit to the government. So I don't think we're above that. And so we honor the lord with our submission in fact he tells timothy that we are to pray have petitions and thanksgiving for those authorities over us for kings and all of authority because god's saving people even from them and so we have a role in this so civil authorities are a gift from god even with all their problems and and i think they're a common grace to us through my travels i've been in places where (laughs) there's not a lot of authority and everybody lives behind bars and frayed and, afraid and uh, as messed up as things are, you go, wow, do, God has been very gracious to this country. And so you and I give. We give our taxes. That whole thing's coming up. We're trying to get our taxes together. and uh, <laughs> Right? Not the funnest time of year. But we're giving to Caesar, aren't we? But the Bible says, and to God the things that are God." So let me ask you a question as I end this. What belongs to God? Thank you. Everything. Everything belongs to him. My wife, my children, my church family, my money, my house, my cars. Everything belongs to him. Am I a good steward of that? When the offering plate comes around, or if you're like us, we give online. Some drop them in those boxes. Some put them in the plates. However God leads you to give. Is it begrudging? Good things to think about, because these Pharisees begrudged giving. And when they did give to the treasury in the temple, it was a showpiece, right? We're gonna see that with a woman in her might. It is a display of their own glory. How do you give? Do you give to the Lord? Are we sparingly givers? Paul wrote to the Corinth church and said, now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Because you want to hold on to things, right? You want to white knuckle stuff. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Was the problem with the two in the early church that didn't do what they said they were gonna do in their heart? God struck them, not grudgingly or not under compulsion. This is why we say we don't have to do this. We get to do it. God's released the compulsion from us. I'm not gaining my salvation through what I'm putting in the offering plate. So offering is a worship. Giving to God is worship. Using my home for a Bible study, taking in somebody in need, whatever it may be, that is worship to God. He's captured you, he now owns you and you you want to serve your master willingly and so you give. So are we sparingly givers and sparingly worshipers? We can't give anything to attain our salvation but the result of our salvation is a desire to give everything. (laughs) I hope you're not mad at me. But this, i got to study this stuff all week long. Kicks my tail around the office. You go, Lord, I want to give you everything. And he just says, look, give a portion. <laughs> and so be amazed. Here's the key. I'll finish with this. I'm, I've gone long. I'm sorry. Um, I've been out for a little while. So You get all worked up when you're out. Hey, let me give you the solution. You will give if you're amazed. If you're not amazed, if you're just going through this Christian thing and walking through some religious stuff, hoping that it all works out in the end and you die and you're in this little casket. We say a few good things about you and you hope you're going to go to heaven. I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I probably gave like that as a young person. But the more I keep seeing Jesus, the more I want to give. I'm amazed at him. And, and that's the key. Are you amazed? Amazed? At Jesus. Father we thank you that you've captured us. You revealed yourself completely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that revelation has now transformed us. In fact it's molding us. It's bringing us into the, into the very image of Christ. It's, 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 it's conforming us to his image. To be more and more like him. And Lord there is no example greater than Jesus Christ. He gave his own life. So, Lord, we need to be amazed. If we're not amazed, we won't give. We'll hold on to stuff. We'll begrudgingly serve you. And we may even walk away like these Pharisees and Herodians with their tail between their legs, upset at the loss of their power and their stuff. Lord, we don't want to be that way. We want to be amazed. And so help us submit to Our ruling authorities that are over us help us to be godly Christians in a very mm, godless climate at times. But help us give to what belongs to the government that takes care of us and runs this nation of ours. But help us, Lord, to with amazement give to you so that you're honored and glorified in all that we do. You own all things, Lord. We all said it here. You have everything. So, Lord, take... Take our hearts, mold us so that we're amazed at you and we'll give for your glory. Thank you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.